every president leaves behind a letter in the Resolute Desk, and, and President Obama left a letter for Donald Trump, and Trump was so proud of this letter. Although the contents of the letter, I thought, were remarkable because it was Obama basically saying, please keep this together. Do not, you know, alienate our allies. It was almost like a cautionary note and it was nothing like the other letters that presidents leave behind. That was Kate Anderson Brower, a journalist and author of numerous books about life in, around, and out of the White House. I'm Mark Updegrove, President and CEO of the LBJ Foundation. And I'm Mark Lawrence, Director of the LBJ Presidential Library. And this is With the Bark Off. Kate began her career as a journalist, working as a producer for CBS News and Fox News before moving on to cover the White House for Bloomberg during the first term of Barack Obama. She's currently a contributor to CNN and has written for The New York Times, Vanity Fair, and The Washington Post. As a best-selling author, she's explored various aspects of life in, around, and out of the White House. I talked to her about three of her books, The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, Team of Five, the President's Club in the Age of Trump, and First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power. We also talked about her latest book, not about the White House at all, but about legendary movie star Elizabeth Taylor. Kate, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So I was fascinated in reading your book, The Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump, who are the five, and why did you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because I was interested in um, how President Trump would approach the uh, the role of being a former president and kind of being not in power anymore. And I know that you've studied this uh, extensively as well. That there's there's it's it's such a difficult position to be in. So I was looking at the five living, especially for someone of his outsized ego, right? Um, I was looking at the five um, uh, living presidents. So you have you have Bush, um, of course, he passed away while I was writing the book, uh, Bush 41. Um, and then you had Bush 43, his son, you had Clinton, you had Obama, um, Carter. I mean, we always think it's interesting to me because I was especially interested in the form, the Republicans, I was going to say former Republicans, the idea of the the Bush family and how they were going to react to Trump in the presidency. And then this idea of these five former presidents, um, really, and you've written about this, the bond that they had with one another, too, and how tr Trump would kind of transform those relationships. And I think we're seeing that play out today. I'll talk about Trump in a moment, Kate, but talk about that that five. What is the dynamic like between those five men that we talked? Carter, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama, the five. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, one of the most fascinating uh, relationships there, and you you know this very well, is Bush 41 and Bush 43, and what the dynamic uh, is like to have your, we know this is only the second time in history, having a president whose who's son then goes on to become president. You have a very protective uh, wife, 
slash mother and Barbara Bush um, and that that dynamic within that family. And I, I know, you know, that the Bush family right now, I feel like they're kind of the old guard Republicans. And we, we see this, uh, the last Republicans, right? They really are kind of a, a dying breed. Um, and I think that the uh, relationship between those two and the sort of push and pull of whether or not Bush 41 and Barbara would call the White House, which they did several times when 43 was president, right? And you've written about that dynamic. Um, and then looking at Carter, I, I feel that I always thought that Jimmy Carter was such an underrated president. And I've interviewed him a, a few times and I I really respect the way he's approached being a former president. He hasn't gone out and tried to make money. He's certainly the least wealthy of these five. Um, and then, of course, what he's done with the Carter Center is incredible. But I, in reporting the book, was not aware of the kind of animosity that I think he, the other formers have for him. The he's an outlier, that, Kate, in so many ways. Uh, how, so why, why, why do you think that happened? Why is is Jimmy Carter considered kind of an outlier among the former presidents. He's not Donald Trump by any means, but there's a little agitation between between Carter and the, the balance of former presidents. Talk about that. Well, I, I think it's pretty simple in that he doesn't, um, he's not as guarded as Bush 41 was, or George H.W. Bush, right? I think that, you know, Carter has gone out and directly, you know, and I talk about it in the book, written op-eds criticizing the policies of the sitting presidents, whether it's uh, the Middle East or the war in Iraq. I mean, he's definitely um, not afraid to stir up some controversy, right? And I think that it, obviously, if you are the president, you feel that a former president should really, you know, stay out of it. And it certainly doesn't help if a, a former Democrat like Carter is criticizing Bill Clinton or Barack Obama in office. I think that that's, you know, it's something that really rubs them the wrong way, which is understandable. But as a journalist, I, I really like the idea, the fact that Carter is just unapologetic about where he stands on certain issues, even knowing, I mean, he wrote a book about um, the Middle East and he wouldn't change the title and it had apartheid in the title, which is just a very incendiary topic. And I, he knew that it was going to alienate people and he wasn't afraid to do it. The, the most recent member of the President's Club of the five that you cover is Barack Obama. How does Barack Obama fit into that that President's Club that you you write about? Well, I've been surprised actually at how private he and and Michelle Obama have been. I mean, they've written best-selling books and obviously they have the very lucrative Netflix deal. Um, and they're doing a lot, I think, to help uh, Democratic candidates. But I, I, I would have thought they would do more. I, I think that they are... Um, much more private. I mean, there's really no former president in that group other than Bush 41. And I'm curious if you agree with that, who they're kind of modeling themselves after, because certainly not the Clintons. Um, they have retreated to this this private life. They have made a lot of money um, and they have spoken out against Donald Trump. I don't see them now talking as much publicly about Biden or supporting his administration. I really think they're retreating um, and it's interesting that I, I don't know what you make of the friendship between George W. Bush and Barack Obama. 
and the friendship between Michelle Obama and George W. Bush. But I think some of that was for show, right? That uh, my sense is, and there's one um, Obama administration official who, when I was working on the book, said, this sounds like a great work of fiction, but they are not, you know, having lunch with each other all the time or talking all the time. This vision that I had going into it isn't the reality necessarily. No, I think there seems to be genuine affection between the two of them, even if there's not a sustained friendship that that uh, you can see playing out every day. And I, there seems to be a little strain between Barack Obama and George W. Bush, amicability for sure, but perhaps mm-hmm. a little strain given the uh, the, the criticism that, that Barack Obama exacted on George W. Bush throughout the course of his administration. But it, it's a very, these are very tenuous relationships in the, in the President's Club. I'm curious, Kate, how do you think Barack Obama, given his enormous popularity, might change the role of former president, at least the roles that we've seen former presidents play to this point? I mean, I think we're seeing this play out uh, every day. He's kind of become kind of an entrepreneur, a media uh, figure. Um, I can't remember the last interview that he did. I don't think we see or hear from him that much. He has an Instagram where he speaks to people directly. But I think he's reimagining the post-presidency in a way that is... um, as a as a hugely important kind of cultural figure and a media tycoon, really in his own right. I mean, he's he's doing a lot of work on documentaries that are supposed to be um, espousing certain messages, and I, I think he was a voice of reason during the Trump years. Now that we have his VP as president, um, I think it's more tenuous. I think it's more difficult for him to weigh in now because he. May, and maybe it was easier, strangely enough, when Trump was president, because it was such a clear divide between Obama um, and his uh, and Donald Trump. And obviously now he cannot speak out. I, I thought it was if he disagrees with President Biden on any issue. You know, I thought it was really interesting when the Bidens went to visit the Carters in Plains and he uh they went and there was a a great photo taken of the Mm -hmm. carters with the bidens but then there was no um biden came out and carter didn't come out of the house with him and i think that was really telling because i think that jimmy carter didn't want to come out and be asked by any journalists who are there uh what he thinks of of biden's you know positions because he obviously Mm -hmm. doesn't agree with everything so the former presidents as you say have this they, they walk a very fine line uh, Herbert Hoover once called them the world's most exclusive trade union. But as you suggest in the book, the President's Club has changed in the era of Donald Trump. How so? Well, just as in office, I think he's been so divisive uh, in the post-presidency and just the, looking at what happened Tuesday night. I mean, we see him uh, as one of the po- most powerful former presidents um, in in American history. I can't think of any former president who um who was endorsing candidates in such a way that i mean he's he's changing what could happen in the midterms and i think that we can see i mean listen if he's he's got election deniers who he's supporting and if those you know we'll know in a few months if that works out for him but we always see in primaries that people who are uh much more 
um, partisan, obviously, just the nature of what's going on. But um, he's a power, he's a powerful force in American politics. And I'm kind of surprised by that, aren't you that it's been, I didn't expect it to last for as long as it has. Yeah, it's it's remarkable the the staying power of of Donald Trump. If he's diminishing, it's it's, it's he's diminishing by inches, not by feet yeah. or, or yards. You interviewed Donald Trump for this book while mm-hmm. he was uh, in the Oval Office. What did you derive from President Trump during the course of that interview? Uh, that he was um, proud to be part of this club, this exclusive club. That he was. Um, I don't think he at that point ever thought he would be entering it so soon. Um, you know, it was actually shortly after the Mueller investigation and he was at, on that particular day, I believe it was in 20, the spring of 2019, but I have it in the book, where he was in a very good mood and incredibly, I mean, boastful, which he always is, but um he liked the idea of even appearing in the same paragraph as Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, these icons um, of, of our culture. So I think he's aware of how extraordinary his place is in history. I mean, I, I was surprised that he had that interest. But um, but I also think that he's uh, he's he had very little interest in maintaining any of these relationships. He sees himself as an outsider uh, forever. I mean, he will always kind of pride himself on that. Uh, almost an insurgent in, mm-hmm. in in some respects. Yeah, it, but it's clear in reading the book and in looking at Trump's behavior in and out of the White House that he has no regard for conventional norms and the traditions around the presidency, which you write so eloquently about. In that regard, has Donald Trump Trump changed the presidency? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's changed our perception of what people are are expecting from a president. Um, I think that kind of the the idea that a president is supposed to um, adhere to these certain norms, I think people, Donald Trump knew better than anyone that the people who voted for him wanted him to deny the election. They wanted him to go ahead and support the insurrection. Um, so it's it's the kind of idea that we no longer are looking for that guiding hand, that steady hand. Um, he's When I was a reporter at, at Bloomberg years and years ago, I remember, you know, President Obama and his staff would call Trump a carnival barker. I mean, it was just not taken seriously. And mm. I think now, Democrats are really, they must be aware that at this point, of course they are, that this is very serious. And um, I think also, and I'm curious because you know so much about President Johnson, I think we're looking for these larger than life personalities. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants a tempered kind of um, Obama-like measured voice anymore. And you think that's changed irrevocably, Kate? Or if you had an Obama who came up through the ranks and captured the imagination of the the American people, almost wielding a movement, do you think that could change back? I hope so, because it's incredibly important not to to be worried about what the president is going to be tweeting, right? But I think we see with Joe Biden's approval ratings less than 40 percent, some would say that he is that uh, steady hand and, and people don't like it. Generally speaking, when a, a president takes office, he reaches out 
to the, the, the living former presidents. That's almost a standard part of a president's existence in the White House. And he does that for a variety of reasons, to show respect for his, his presidential brethren, and also because he wants to seek their advice. They're the only people who truly understand what he might be, may be going through at any particular point. Trump had very few interactions, Kate, but you talk about a couple in the book. One is the funeral of George Herbert Walker Bush, and it was a little awkward. Can you talk about that experience between the former presidents and the sitting president, Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was uh, very important, actually, for Donald Trump to be invited to that funeral, because that was something he wasn't necessarily sure would happen. I mean, my sense when I interviewed him was not long after uh, Bush had passed away. And he said, you know, I was very honored to be a guest at the funeral. And to me, it's just so shocking to think that that a president would even think that they'd be left off that list. I mean, Barbara Bush, uh, you know, famously did not have him um, on that list. But as a first lady, you have the ability. I mean, it, you don't see presidents passing away and not inviting uh, the sitting president to the funeral. But, you know, it was it was incredible to see him. I mean, famously, he walked in uh, to the National Cathedral and kind of handed his jacket to somebody in a strange way and sort of with the chin jutting out and the whole thing. And then to see him sitting next to these people who he has just dragged through the mud. I mean, I always think back to the um, Hillary Clinton debate when he brought Paula Jones and the other accusers. And just to think that she was sitting next to this man who had humiliated her. Um, and, and then the Obamas, uh, later we know that Michelle Obama wrote in her memoir that she thought that he had risked their children's lives. I mean, put them in danger. But by pushing this notion that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and thus was an illegitimate president. Absolutely. And 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 Barack Obama had more death threats than any uh president in recent history and 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 to just think of the um restraint that that must have taken for the Obamas and the Clintons in particular not to say something um to him and I I think it was an important moment that we we could see all of the former presidents and first ladies sitting there. Um and then to to think that Bush, uh, George W. Bush had only spoken with President Trump for, you know, 20 minutes or so at Blair House before um, the funeral. It's also remarkable because you see with these other um, relationships during, I think, a really un kind of a, a time in history that people don't look at enough is the transition. And I'm curious mm -hmm. if you agree with that, because there was mm -hmm. no transition between Obama and Trump. There was no traditional um, meeting that we would see. There was no tr no tea between the, the incoming first lady and Michelle Obama. And I think those formalities are, are really important for those relationships, but also for the American people. Barack Obama, I think, very graciously received Donald Trump uh, during the, the transition in 2017. But there was a, obviously a very fractious relationship between the two of them. You, you write in the book about a near miss between President Trump, sitting President Trump and former President Obama. Talk, talk about that, Kate. 
Well, so uh, every president leaves behind a letter in the Resolute Desk, and, and President Obama left a letter for, for Donald Trump, and Trump was so proud of this letter that he apparently showed it to, I believe it was an ABC News crew, or, or you know, and it was, it, this is another breach of protocol that's never done, um, where you actually reveal the letter. Uh, usually it's, it's, as you know, something that they, they consider very private and they do years later. Um, but he was proud of the letter, although the contents of the letter, I thought, were remarkable because it was Obama basically saying, please keep this together. Do not, you know, alienate our allies and remember the goodness of the American people. It was almost like a um, cautionary note and it was nothing like the other letters that presidents leave behind. And yeah. and Trump called uh, President Obama, former President Obama, and um, wanted to speak with him. And by the time Obama called him back, the, the so much damage had already been done. I mean, it was, I think, a, a couple of days. I have it in the book. It wasn't that long. But we know after the inauguration with the lies about the crowd size and so many things that happened, the time had passed. Your book, uh, The Residence, is a fascinating upstairs, downstairs look at the White House operation. How would you describe how the White House is run? It's it's a very well orchestrated uh, machine, you know, and it's there. <laughs> no matter who is in office, there are you know a hundred people who protect the presidency. I mean, I'm just actually reading. Um, Alonzo Fields wrote a book, "My 21 Years in the White House," a really fascinating book about the Roosevelt administration and and what it was like to work for the Roosevelts and. You know, during World War II, you had the map room where um, there were the incredible D maps about D-Day that that were in the White House, covered up, um, and and the staff was not even allowed to see them. So I mean, there's so much going on inside the White House, and you have these butlers, housekeepers, carpenters, you know, chefs, you name it, who befriend each other. It's kind of a Downton Abbey type of mm. um, relationship. And then they, I was shocked that they just, everybody I interviewed for that book told me that they were there to serve the presidency and it didn't matter who the president was. And mm. I kind of cynically didn't believe them necessarily. And then Donald Trump became president and I checked in with some of them and they still you know, they said, well, he was always nice to us. And so we don't agree with his politics, but and a lot of them are African-American, people from all over the world, Hispanic, people that did not like his politics, but they, they wanted to serve the presidency, and this is who we've elected. You begin the book very poignantly uh, with a member of the White House staff named Preston Bruce, who, among other uh, administrations, uh, served with the, with the Kennedy family. In so many ways, he's reflective of the commitment and dedication of the White House staff. Talk about Preston Bruce, Kate. Well, I, I actually um, spoke with some of his relatives because he, another interesting thing about that is he was related to several people who all 
also worked at the White House because so many, you know, these jobs are not advertised. And so they would bring in their nephews, their cousins, people who they could trust. And Preston Bruce was a barber uh, in D.C. He had, um, you know, he was he was married and had but he was married to his job, really. I mean, he describes how he was there for days after the Kennedy assassination. Mm just waiting for Mrs. Kennedy, you know, to, to, if she needed him. And she, he, I remember slept um, in the White House, which he normally didn't do. And the kind of the scene of the president, President Kennedy's body being brought back to the White House and the staff not wanting to cry because they could see that, that uh, Jackie Kennedy was trying to be stoic and they didn't want to see her, you know, they didn't want her to see them upset. Um, he was like a member of the Kennedy family. I mean, he walked in the funeral procession next to Charles de Gaulle and other heads of state. It's kind of an incredible thing. Um, he uh, cried with with Jackie Kennedy and Robert Kennedy in, in the elevator. It's it's uh, th- that is a stunning moment, I have to say. And I've read a lot about the Kennedys, but I had not read about this. Uh, it's it's uh, Bobby Kennedy escorting. Jackie Kennedy back into the White House after the assassination on the on the evening of November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. She embraces Preston Bruce. Uh, the three of them get into an elevator and they all cry. It's as though they all release this bottled up emotion together. And Kate, I must tell you that was an incredibly poignant scene that you painted in the residence. Thank you. I, I, I think the elevator is one of the only places they can be alone. Yeah. And that, that kind of embodies that. How does the White House staff adapt to its new residents? Every four or eight years, you get a brand new family moving into the White House and they have new, they, they have different needs and different expectations. What does that process of uh, a new White House family or couple uh, interacting and adapting to the to the White House staff and vice versa look like. I, I think that the, there's a so there's a the chief usher of the White House is essentially the general manager of the White House. They are the person in charge. And Gary Walters, who was there uh, for years with the Bushes and the Reagans, he said that he um, he knew when the family was finally comfortable, and it was when you could walk in and out of a room and they would keep talking. And I think those first few weeks, there's that sense that uh, you can't really completely trust these people for the first family. Um, and then they realize that they actually can. I mean, I think that so many of them have gone to their graves with incredible stories and that, that they wouldn't talk about. January 20th is often a remarkable day in this country when you have the transition between an outgoing president and an incoming President, we talked about that a moment ago, but what does that look like in the White House? You, ha- you, have, you literally have to move one family out and another family in. And yet when we see that president and first lady go to the White House, everything is, is in its place. Everything's where it should be. So that's got to be an incredible time uh, in the White House where you're preparing for this brand new family to come and, and making sure everything is in place when they arrive. And it's really showtime for the staff. I mean, it's their time to <laughs> to shine. They, they, there's an operations department, and this is their day where they um, they literally have to do this themselves because they don't hire movers to do it. So it's the staff, and the, you have everyone from 
chefs and butlers lending a hand to um, to the actual people in charge, the operations folks who are moving furniture. Um, they are very concerned about making sure everything is in its place. They also want to make sure that the next morning they have the right breakfast for them. I mean, they start planning this during um, during the election. Once they have the two candidates, they're looking into the families. I was told even the top tier candidates they're looking at well before the election. Hmm. Um, so they're considering, you know, what do they like to eat? They're talking to their friends. They're, you know, they meet with the um, with the winner and the social secretary. They meet with the social secretary. Uh, so Desiree Rogers uh, met with them, you know, several weeks before the Obamas moved into the White House. But it's it's pressure, a lot of pressure. What does the chief usher's job look like on any uh, at any given time? What, what is he doing on it, or, or he or she doing on a day to day basis? They're running the the house. I mean, they're hiring people. They're they're deciding. Um, they're talking to the social secretary, who is uh, an aide to the first lady, about menus. So he's he also escorts the president to the Oval Office in the morning. Has conversations with them about anything that there's bothering them in the residence. Um, I was told even if the water pressure is off, they'll it's the president telling you know. And as we know with LBJ, he famously had an obsession with the shower. Um, <laughs> it was never right. They never got the water pressure right, no, no, right. no matter what they did. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know if you ever talked to Bess Abel, that she passed away recently in, well, last year, right? Yeah. And she um, she talked about the transition from the Johnson, from the Kennedys to the Johnsons, rather, and, and how it was the only you know, it's the only time in recent history where there was no there was no fanfare. Obviously, the house was covered in black fabric and sorrow and grief. And I always think that that trans that must have been the hardest for the, for the staff to who loved the Kennedys um, to get used to 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 this whole new, very different style of a president. As Lady Bird Johnson said, she she felt like she was thrown into a role that she hadn't rehearsed for. That was on the front end. On the back end, it's interesting because you talked about the transition of the White House. But for the outgoing family, you, you described Lady Bird Johnson going back to the LBJ ranch on January 20th, 1969. And there is this heap of luggage in the front yard. It's very unceremonious on the other end. You yes. don't have that White House staff tending to every detail. It's, it's fascinating. It's got to be an interesting transition, not only for the White House staff, but for the incoming and outgoing families as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think she had some great lines because you know what a great writer she was in her diaries about, you know, feeling like Cinderella. You know, here she is. <laughs> She's, she, she went from the height of, of luxury and suddenly you have no one to unpack your suitcase. And you've turned right back into a pumpkin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> Another one of your wonderful books is First in Line about our vice presidents. And I'm wondering, after writing that book, Kate, what is it like to be the vice president of the United States? What is the daily reality of that job? I think it really depends on who. And I think it's, obviously LBJ really didn't enjoy it. And there's a lot of compromises you need to make. I think that it's it's uh, it's much like being first lady and that there's really no job description other than to be there in case something happens. Um, I think we saw with Mike Pence that he was really a, a, the steady hand and safe 
person in that White House. I think we saw with January 6th, he really was uh, somebody who could be trusted in certain circumstances. Um, but there are so many great lines about being vice president that just, you know, famously the warm bucket of spit. I think that's the cleaned up version. Cleaned up version, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it's such a, I, I would guess, I, I in, in talking to vice presidents and in researching it, I think it's just a deeply frustrating uh, position to be in. And, uh, you know, I went up to New York and talked to Dan Quayle and he still is ju just harbor. And I don't know if you've spoken to him, harbors a lot of resentment about how he was treated so long ago. Did you find that? I, I did. And, and it's interesting. Uh, uh, in so many ways, as you pointed out, but probably no more so than for Mike Pence, it's a thankless job. Has anyone been fulfilled by the role of vice president that you've studied? I I, I think uh, Cheney is really the only example, and I don't hmm. know if he was deeply fulfilled by it, but I certainly, I think he it didn't mind taking on that role. He didn't want to be president. Um, and I, in my sense is, and you you know about the Bush family more than I do, in the sense is that he didn't mind being the Darth Vader of that relationship. He kind of, <laughs> he kind of enjoyed that. And I think he loved the control and the influence he had in the Bush White House. But there is nobody else, you know, um, of the vice presidents I spoke to, which was all of them except for Pence. And it was very mm. funny. I got very close. I kept getting close to talking to Pence. And every time it was canceled, and in retrospect, it's so clear to me that they just never wanted him to get any attention because it would jeopardize his relationship with the president. And, uh, you know, we're seeing now, obviously, what happened January 6th changed everything, but he, he was completely subservient to Donald Trump up until that point. Of those you covered in the book, who do you think best served in the role of vice president? Oh, that's a, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I think that I, I think that Cheney was doing a lot of the work. I mean, he was helping. If your definition of being a vice president is is getting things done, I would have to say Dick Cheney. I mean, and a substantive mm -hmm. role in 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 the in the in the White House operations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Dan Quayle, in some ways, now I, I would not say that he did Bush any favors, but he did draw a lot of the heat away from Bush, right? And I, I always sensed that there was, it was a really um, cynical calculus that was being made, that he could be the punching bag. And, uh, you know, he did misspell, what was it, potato or whatever, potato. but you know, he, yep. yes. But, Could but have happened really, to any of us. <laughs> you know, and, and there wasn't a huge effort to, to help. I don't know. If, is that your sense that the Bushes kind of were okay with him being uh, kind of the punchline sometimes? I think that's, that's not only my sense, but I, that's the role. I think that's the expectation you have when you're in the, the role of vice president. That's the price you pay for being a heartbeat away from the presidency in some respects. That's, that's fair. But nobody would think that Cheney... You know, I, I think it was the complete opposite with Bush and Cheney. I mean, Cheney was was the intellectual, you know, power there. He was uh, he was no laughingstock. He was just somebody who I think the the left really vilified. 
and certainly in the first term had enormous influence over the, the policy of the, the George W. Bush administration. I, I wonder how you think Kamala Harris is doing in the role of vice president. Kate, in any way, is she anomalous? Is she different um, than those who have preceded her in that role? Aside from the obvious historic differences, the first female, the first African-American, the first Asian-American. But do you think there's she brings anything different to that role? I think it's surprising that we don't talk more about her, actually, because I think she is incredibly, not only because of, as you mentioned, just she's entirely different in the, her life experiences that she's bringing to the role, but um, I think that she has been put in this impossible position where she's being given these, these assignments that are very difficult. There is a lot of gossip in Washington and in political circles, as you know, that she's not being served well by her staff. And it does not seem to me that the Biden administration is doing much to stop quell those rumors. I'm, I'm surprised because you would think that Biden, having been VP for eight years, would would want to help her more or in realizing that she doesn't have the institutional knowledge, right, that he did for, you know, 40 years in the Senate. Um, when he was VP, he came to it understanding Washington so well. So I think, I think she's being, um, I, I think she's not being treated entirely fairly. Um, and I'm not sure why she's being given the border and other issues that we know are intractable. I mean, no vice president is going to solve those issues. Um, so, you know, she's made some gaffes and, but, but I don't think they've been, deal breakers, but it doesn't seem like there's an effort to uh, to kind of groom her into being a presidential candidate someday. Do you agree? Uh, well, I, I certainly do in, in some respects. I think some of that's the nature of the job. Like Lyndon right. Johnson got, you know, uh, Kennedy threw civil rights at him, knowing it was a political hot potato and uh, knowing that there would be challenges uh, in in that regard. And in the same manner, you had, you know, the, the border going to, um, to, to, to Kamala Harris. It's some, to some degree, it's the nature of the job. I, I, I wonder, I'd love to hear your take on her media coverage. She does not, as you said, the, uh, the, the nature of that role is that you're a punching bag for the American public, for the media, uh, and she has been no exception. But it seems like it's particularly negative uh, for her. There hasn't been a lot of positive coverage. Is, do you think there's some gender bias in that? What, 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 do, you, what do you attribute that to? Uh, oh, I think there's definitely gender bias. Um, and I also think that perhaps her staff hasn't ingratiated themselves to members of the press, right? They are not kind of working it the way they should. There's not, um, I don't think that there are a lot of off the record opportunities to talk to her. Uh, and I think that frustrates reporters, not to say that journalists take it out on the subject, but it certainly makes sense to um, to try to humanize her and have her speak with White House reporters more in an off the record setting. Um, I just think that, yeah, I mean, of course, listen, we we've never had a, a woman this close to the presidency before. So there's obviously some sexism there um, that's so deeply ingrained it, you know, in this country. Absolutely. I'm going to depart from the White House uh, for a moment. And uh, because you've departed 
from the White House with your next book project where you write about uh, legendary actress Elizabeth Taylor. Um, so much of a departure for you. Why did you want to write this book? Well, I, I was actually uh, searching for a topic that had sort of tentacles in Washington, but was not a, a Washington story and was not deeply about politics. And I got to know John Warner, who was her seventh husband, uh, senator from Virginia. Um, and uh, I, I was interested in her life story and he was very, he was towards the end of his life. Um, and he wanted to tell, to really have people appreciate what she did, uh, for HIV and AIDS, but also just as a, as a legendary cultural figure and icon. And, um, believe it or not, I mean, there are some people who I say Elizabeth Taylor to, and they look at me like, who? You know, I mean, you have to remind people um, what she did. I mean, she was the first major celebrity activist, to, certainly to take on HIV and AIDS at a time when it was a radioactive, uh, you know, disease. Um, and she also did a lot to, I think, change the way people viewed uh, gay men, you know, in this country mm -hmm. at a time when there was rampant homophobia. So I wanted to um, to talk to her kids and I wanted to look through her diaries and through Senator Warner, I got to do that. So what's most struck you about Elizabeth Taylor as you got to know her through this project? I mean, so many things, but I think it's the um, the kind of the chutzpah. I did not realize that she was the first woman to be paid, first actor, male or female, although there is some debate about Marlon Brando on this. Um, it depends on exactly when he signed his contract, but um, mm -hmm. when she was paid a million dollars for uh, Cleopatra, you know, and, and she refused to do it without that. Um, and then also, uh, to me, it's always the little stories, you know, she would go visit um, people in hospices and she actually helped um, bring cash for experimental drugs across the country, you know, things that she did that could have gotten her put in jail. Uh, to help during the AIDS crisis and just the, the rampant sexism of the time, too, and the way she was treated in the press for stealing Eddie Fisher away from Debbie Reynolds and then stealing Richard away from his wife, Sybil. I mean, there was a lot of negative publicity that I didn't realize at the time. Um, looking back, you think she had this charmed life, but I think it was it was full of drama and uh, addiction and everything else. <laughs> There's no question. I, I've had the pleasure of reading a manuscript of the book, and I, I, uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It comes out when, Kate? When December. Is it comes out December 6th, so not that far from now, actually. Well, we wish you great success with that book, and I also wholeheartedly recommend Team of Five, The Residents, and first in line, which we've talked about today with our guest, Kate Anderson Brower. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Mark, thanks for having me. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.